0: Habits and Health, episode 95.
1: Welcome to the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy, brought to you by an educator and coach for anyone who wants to create a healthier life. Here's your host, Tony Winyard.
0: Habits and Health, episode 95. Welcome to another edition of Habits and Health. My guest today, Dr. Joe Matha, MD who is a board-certified family practice physician and the medical director of the Ruscio Institute for Functional Medicine. He graduated from Tulane University School of Medicine and Tulane University School of Public Health in 2011 and completed his residency in 2014. He's passionate about delivering cost-effective and practical medical care with a focus on GI health and environmental toxicity. So that's today's episode with Dr. Joe Mather, and we find out a lot more about what it is he does, how he helps people, about functional medicine, and a lot more. If you enjoy this week's show, please share it with someone who would really get some value from listening to some of the wisdom that Joe um, shares with us. Habits and health. My guest today, Dr. Joe Mather. How are you doing, Joe?
1: Doing fantastic, Tony. How
0: are you? I'm pretty good. And
1: we're in—is it New Orleans today? You got it. It's a beautiful day in New Orleans.
0: I think this may be the first time we've been there. We've been in a lot of places around North America. I can't recall having a, a guest from there before. So, well,
1: man, we, we're, it's we're a unique city. We've got a lot of soul, a lot of music. It's small enough that you don't spend your whole life in traffic, but big enough that you can still watch the Saints play and see some fun festivals. So, I think it's a fantastic place to be. You should come visit. Is, is it where you're from? no i grew up in the north i grew up in upstate new york but uh, you could think canada really but uh, i got tired of freezing <laughs> all the time <laughs> so <laughs> south
0: and is that what was it that initially drew you to though in the first place
1: to new orleans it the music uh, i spent a lot of time uh, as a kid listening to blues music as it is and when i was applying to medical school after after college i was like yeah, it'd be pretty fun to be in new orleans and as luck would have it i got into the medical school here and fell in love with the city. You walk through the city and there's just music playing, and you're like, it's great.
0: Sounds, sounds pretty cool. I'm very much into music myself, but we won't go down that avenue. But yeah, it sounds really we, cool. We
1: could do another podcast. Yeah, yeah.
0: I know that you had a quick chat before, and I've looked at some stuff on the uh, on the website as well. And you're the medical director of the, I have to pronounce this right, is it the Ruscio Institute? Close, it's our Ruscio. Ruscio Institute, right? Yeah. And, and, and the Institute for Functional Medicine. So, Tell me more about that. How did that come about? How long have you been there? What does it you do?
1: Michael Ruscio is a chiropractor who specialized in gut-based functional medicine. And I've teamed up with Michael after blazing my own path and running an internal medicine practice and opening my own private practice. And the, the question I've always had as I practice medicine is, how do I get patients with chronic disease? And functional medicine is this field where the whole idea is, what is the root cause of disease? And if you fix that root cause of a disease, you'll get patients back. And so I really spent the last 10 years just cycling through all of the claims in functional medicine, what works, what doesn't. And one of the most consistent avenues to get patients with all sorts of chronic disease batteries, fixing and optimizing gut health. So early in my career, when I was trying to sort through what works and what doesn't, I found Michael's work really resonated. And it was one of those cases where I tried it and it worked Real quick on a couple of patients I'd struggled with, and so I said, "Oh, there's a signal that really worked." And then the more I did it, the more I worked through with patients, the better it got. And so I said, "Okay, this is one of those main root causes." Fast forward, and uh, Michael and I became fast friends, and we uh, teamed up. and Our kind of mission is to simplify functional medicine because there's a lot of a lot of nonsense in the field. if I can be frank, and we're trying to do our very best to get cost effective care. and so focus on the gut, because that's one of the best avenues.
0: So there's, there's a few areas we can dive into from what you just said. So let, let's start with the, the functional medicine, because there's, it seems like anyone can just call themselves a functional medicine practitioner. You're correct. And that's crazy, really, in a way, isn't it?
1: It sure is. So I'm an MD, and, and I consider myself a functional medicine practitioner, But you can be a health coach and say I'm a functional medicine practitioner, you can be a dietitian could be see, functional medicine, uh, like physical therapists, physios, and there really is no one governing body. So I was trained in family medicine as a GP, as, as y'all would have it in the UK. And so I have a pretty broad background, but that could be very different from someone who goes to a couple of seminars and then says they're a functional medicine diet. So it's a little bit the Wild West, and it's a really uh, amazing field in a lot of ways. And it's growing right so what it is now is different i think it was even 10 years ago when i first left in but you're absolutely correct there is no one governing board or one of degrees in fact at our clinic i'm an md i'm the medical director we have a a large diversity of clinicians michael is a chiropractor the dc dr scott uh is a naturopath so nd and then dr hannah she's a a do so we kind of have the the run of the gamut of of medical degrees which Mm we think is helpful at bringing a diversity of thought.
0: And so if someone has decided that is the route they want to go down, maybe they've tried, they've been with their GP and they haven't been getting results they've been hoping for. And so they think they've been hearing about functional medicine. What would be some checks that they could take themselves to find someone good to work with?
1: The one I think the biggest problem with the field right now is an over-reliance on laboratory testing. And so I would be extremely concerned that this is not a red flag all the time, but often if a doctor is asking for four to five tests at a fairly significant financial cost without meeting you, that's a red flag to me because that suggests that doctor is overly reliant on laboratories that quite honestly are not that And that usually leads to a clinical process, very expensive and laboratory-driven. And the laboratories, because they're not as accurate as many doctors and patients believe them to be, leads to a path where they don't get very good outcomes and they pay way more than they need. You can order here in the states. Standard blood work will typically go through insurance or it can be done for cash for relatively uh, inexpensive, say under two hundred dollars for most cases. Right. Hmm. Many of the functional medicine tests are four to eight hundred. Right, mm. and so if someone is asking you to do multiple tests without listening to your story, without listening what what are their simple, who is this patient in front of me? That's a pretty big red flag. And so if
0: they if that is the case, and the practitioner they're talking to is suggesting many different tests, is it as simple as just finding someone else, or what would you
1: say? I think so. I, I think that particularly with medicine, just like in therapy, or if you're hiring a therapist or an architect or a physio, you need someone that you connect with at a pretty, a pretty good level. And it's almost like speed dating. You, you need to find someone you connect with and you can build some trust, some trust. And patients have a pretty good intuition that the person they're working with is trustworthy and honest or not. And yeah, I would say I wish it was easy. I wish there was enough functional medicine docs out here that, that it was as simple as just finding a new one, but it's a growing field. And so I think it's trying to find it.
0: And so what was it that made you, I mean, we, we touched upon this before we started recording, that made you go into functional medicine in the first place after doing your you yeah, I was frustrated.
1: I was frustrated. At, I've always wanted to be a doctor, right? At, at, at the deepest level, I've always felt I, I'm called to be a healer. That's just how I've always seen myself from an early age. And so naturally, I wanted to go right into medical school and I was able to make that happen and was lucky to be yeah. able to do that and just figured it would be as simple as that. You get your medical degree, you get broad training in family medicine, and then you're off to the race, right? I care about getting patients better, and i a great university. So I was, I thought that it was going to be as simple as that, but I got to the tail end of my conventional training. It's just like, patients aren't getting better, right? I'm doing all of the diets that the American Diabetic Association is telling me to do, following all the cholesterol guidelines from the American Heart Association. I know Exactly how the pulmonologist would treat this COPD. Nobody got better because I had a clinic for three years where I would see people eventually over many years. And at the end of the third year, I'm like, man, no one's better. So I'm either a bad doctor or the, the tools I'm using are not helping. They're not, And it, thankfully, <laughs> it wasn't the former. The tools were not appropriate to help the patient. And so it then became the journey of okay, what? Actually works because there's lots of claims out there and
0: so how did you make the next step
1: i did training with the institute of functional medicine i read and about so
0: before that
1: how did you find out that were you already aware of functional medicine so what, what happened there one of my professors my, my mentors in residency put on a lecture with dr mark hyman who is one of the major i think educators in functional medicine and he mm-hmm. just said some things that the like, this is interesting. I haven't heard that talked about in this way before. He helped was pretty influential in the Institute of Functional Medicine, which is the, the major educational group. And so I went through their training and I read about 50 books and I, I couldn't tell you how many hours of podcast interviews and just started reading and listening to patients and applying it step by step one thing at, and here we are 10 years later.
0: And so you you mentioned about your specializes in, was it the gut microbiome, was it?
1: Yeah, we specialize in all things gut care. I wouldn't label us as just working with the microbiome. We could talk about that, why we don't do exactly that. We have focused in really selecting the tools that make a difference from the GI perspective. And the reason why we're pinpointing on the gut is that is one of the major systems that's easiest to change, right, from a dietary perspective and supplement perspective. From a lifestyle perspective, we have a lot of leverage of being able to change the gut. And the gut, in our experience, is the system most likely to help other systems improve. So by fixing someone with irritable bowel syndrome, we often see improvements in brain fog and neurologic. We'll often see improvements in anxiety or depression, again, neurologic. We'll often see improvements in skin, dermatologic. We'll often see improvements in joint arthritis, right? And so that is like one of those major root causes when you're seeing multiple systems in different domains go away. It tells you that truly is a root cause where we spend a lot of time on those reasons.
0: And isn't it the case, as I don't know the situation in the States, but it seems to me here in the UK, if you go and see your local GP, there's real time constraints for one thing. So you don't really get to spend much time with them. Yes. So therefore, it's, it's rare that they're going to suggest to look at the gut if, as a cause of an issue.
1: It is. It, it's really unfortunate. We have the privilege of seeing patients across the world and it's not better in other places. I can assure you. Um, uh, I just dealt with a, a wonderful guy from Canada the other day and similar story. Went to the GI. They threw an antidepressant at him and some fiber, did a colonoscopy and said, go away. Nothing else I can do? I see the same thing in people from Australia. I see the same thing. Brazil, Italy, U.S. We, we see people all over now and it's really disheartening. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, There is a time constraint and there is a lack of good training on the things that help. And the doctors haven't caught up, I think, to the latest medical look on the gut. But that's okay because we're doing podcasts like this, Tony. Get the word out. (laughs) Do you think that's changing? Slowly. There's definitely more of an awareness that the gut can do more than just help with your bloating or your diarrhea. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be sure to me, but... I think i'm biased because i'm in that world every day so it's a little bit hard to put myself outside of that world do you feel that it's changing it seems to me
0: there's a lot more awareness about it now i remember i don't know what was it three or four years ago i used to often hear maybe on a podcast episode or on different books some doctors criticizing things like leaky gut saying it was ridiculous there is no such thing that doesn't seem to be happening so much anymore
1: My my observation is most conventional doctors because they have handcuffs on with time they have handcuffs on with training and they have based on how they're paid usually insurance companies it's just easier for them to dismiss something out of hand than give it a thought and so it's much easier for them to say oh a basic elimination diet is bunk here's a drug or but and then what happens inevitably is for the things that are true is that all of a sudden you'll have all the gi doctors saying of course a low fodmap diet is helpful of course probiotics can help reduce brain fog and joint pain well, of course, an elemental diet can help resolve SIBO. We were saying that years ago, and you just you just raise your hands, and you're like, okay. <laughs> They'll come on board eventually because it works, and that's what it comes down to. Is that we're looking for the things that make people better. We don't care about the ideas; it just has to translate into outcome. Give my patient a better outcome, then I'm all for it.
0: So, we've got probably got audience people listening to this who maybe aren't so knowledgeable around the whole gut. And they may be wondering, why is the gut so important? Why does that make such a difference? And how, how are you able to help someone with, one of the things I mentioned I wanted to talk to you about was arthritis. So say we've got someone listening who's got something like arthritis. How is it that by looking at the gut you can help
1: them? Absolutely. So the first thing I think about is that the gut by surface area is by far the largest entranceway into the body, right? So bigger than the outside skin, much bigger than the nose, right? The internal lining of the gut from top to bottom wow. is the single biggest entryway to the body. So a huge input on how the body regulates homeostasis, right? Hmm. The, it's how we get our nutrition, how we expel wastes and toxin, right? So there are major functions wrapped up into it. and. It's extremely important to realize the density of the immune system around the small intestines is extremely high. Again, because that's a major entrance way to the body. The body has an incentive to protect itself by wrapping the first part of the intestine with a ton of immunity, ton of nervous cell activity. And because of that, you get immune function wrapped up in the health of the gut, because of the proximity of both the nervous system and the immune system to the gut, because it's an so because of that, by improving the health of the gut, that holds hands with the immune system. And that's one of the ways that, that we see a reduction in joint pain. What we find is a decent number of patients come into our clinic with IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. They have fluctuating diarrhea, constipation, usually some bloating, nausea, and they may have tried a few things and they're still feeling ill. And I would say the patients with IBS 20% report joint pain. And the really neat thing is that in many of those patients, not all, but in many of those patients with joint pain, when you get the GI symptoms better, their stools become more regular, they're having less nausea, if they're able to eat more, the heartburn goes away, the reflux. When that happens, you almost frequently see other systems heal, so the joint pain goes away. And that we assume and think that is primarily due to a less immune system. We think the joint pain is immunological drip. This would be something like rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system is inappropriately activated against some of the tissues around the joints, be it the collagen, the joint capsule, or the joint itself. And the simplest, best way to calm the immune system is often to heal the small intestine and the gut. Did that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it, and I was thinking, what of all of the things that you're, so you mentioned that you often look at the gut to, to help people with different issues. Absolutely. Is there, what do you think would surprise people the most, an issue that they would never consider the gut could have any influence over
1: that, that, that
0: does help?
1: Rosacea comes to mind. We see a lot of rosacea in our patients with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And in my mind, if someone comes in with rosacea, that, that's a, a clear sign that there's a problem because I would say about 75% of patients look with rosacea respond brilliantly to the tools we use. Um, so that would be one that probably m- people may not consider rosacea being a-, a gut-driven condition, but in our experience, it's heavily dominated by the gut.
0: Environmental toxicity, how much is does that play a role in poor health now?
1: I think this is going to be the thing that in 10 years we all say I couldn't believe that no one was thinking this. This is a huge part of our work and I'll, I'll say because a few reasons. right? So number one, we see many patients with mold toxicity who've been sick because they've been living in damp water damaged buildings and they are made sick from the allergic response to mold. They're being sick from the infectious load of the bacteria and the fungus that tend to grow in water damage buildings and they're being made sick at the toxins that mold can produce, right? So we see patients who are sick from a mold perspective. We see patients who have been made sick from air pollution. There were forest fires or are forest fires in the western portion of the United States. And I observed a really interesting, horrible, but interesting pattern of people having lots of symptoms flare as the particle count from the forest fires went west to east. Over the country, joint pain, brain fog, anxiety, diarrhea, constipation, whatever their main symptom was, it seemed to flare. It. So air pollution is increasingly problematic. Uh, we see one of the more disheartening cases uh, over the past two years was a, a, a gal who came in her early 50s, really fit, really healthy, doing so many things right, and uh, losing her hair right? Her eyebrows were falling away, her hair was thinning and falling away, and she was fatigued all the time. And it came down to, she had seen a practitioner previously who had recommended that she eat a, a green leafy gut. So she was eating, I think, between four and six cups of kale and spinach a day in a smoothie. And it turns out that kale and spinach, although it was organic, was contaminated with thallium. And her urinary thallium levels were as high as I've ever seen and it was just so disheartening that we could have a patient doing something that was seen to be so healthy, eating green leafy vegetables in a smoothie right, was being poisoned because of thallium in a contaminated food supply, so when I think of environmental toxicity, it's it's one of the major problems I think that are causing poor health outcomes across the world, I see it most here in the US My, my greed is that the environmental protections that the uk ha- has put in and, and most of i think western europe is quite a quite a degree better than what we have here in the states and forth i think it's a major problem mm.
0: and so if so in a situation like that where you mentioned about this girl having these smoothies seemingly eating very healthy so and how did she discover that what was it she was just ill and she couldn't understand why and she came to say, you what what happened Exactly.
1: Yeah, she was ill, and we she had GI symptoms. So, like many patients, I began with the gut, and she didn't. So we had spent two months really working on tweaking her diet. We used broad spectrum probiotics. I believe I pulsed in an elemental diet, and one at a time. And at the end of two months, she just hadn't moved the needle anyway. So that's a big sign to me as a clinician that what I thought was the case was not true. It was not a gut was not the root cause for mm-hmm. her right and so i scratched my head and then i listened a little bit more and we did a urinary heavy metal Have her wake up in the morning pee in a cup and see was there anything there and this was uh i i'd become aware of thallium toxicity and, and green leafy vegetables and kale particularly and so i won the hair loss was the case and sure enough it was and so what we did with this gal <laughs> took her off the kale right you're being poisoned the treatment is to stop the poisoning And then we did a detoxification program. We used binders to pull the heavy metals. Things like modified citrus pectin and chlorella used some sauna. And I used glutathione. And she responded beautifully. So hair started growing back within a week. And three months later, it was where she was prior. And the fatigue and that joint pain and depression settled away. So that told us that we hit on the mark, right? The root cause was the thallium because she improved when we addressed it.
0: If the average person did have tested for toxicity, wouldn't many people show? I'm guessing many people would show signs of toxicity much more so than say 20, 30 years ago.
1: I think so. I think that's the truth. The I spent a lot of time looking at the CDC's report it's called n NHANES, N-H-A-N-E-S, and it's a longitudinal uh, study and documenting many things, many environments, looks heavy metals being one of. And we've definitely seen an increase in many metals and many substances, many plastics over the last few decades. So I think that is the truth. I do want to quibble a little bit. We can have chemical exposures and toxin exposures and mold exposure without necessarily being toxic. So you could even have some thallium at a higher level in your urine than maybe someone standing next to you. But the question is, is it manifesting is a problem. This gal had hair loss, which is one of the cardinal manifestations and so that she very clearly was toxic right so we just want to be careful because i saw a case last week where uh, a gentleman had some elevated mercury in his ear, right and i thought i did a good job of communicating that it's something that we should work on but it's not something to talk about and he sends me an email saying about the mercury toxicity i said no you're not toxic like we, we want to optimize your health i'd rather get it out i'm about to explode <laughs> you're okay so hope that helps.
0: And I guess in today's world with the scare stories that we're subjected to all the time in, in the media about toxins and various other things, it's hard for people to, just that those scare stories alone, create additional stress, which is the last thing. Which, exactly, what, it's It's hard for people who do, like that girl that you just gave as an example, someone who really wants, goes the extra mile to try to be healthy. Mm. And so how, what? Recommendations as to you give to people to try to just stay generally healthy.
1: We spend an inordinate amount of time on s- sleep. Is the lifestyle here that in our Western world is just so has been decimated with light exposure, with people not having exposure to dark, with the chronic stress levels, the diets that we eat, and with our lack of activity. Right. We the number that I read at some point was that our earliest ancestors may, may have walked thirteen miles a day on average hunt and gather. And I'm lucky if most of my patients are walking a mile a day. And so the the lifestyles that we are living, I think, are contributing to a a big sleep deficit. And this has a range of effects on the body. And we often see problems because of this. We see fatigue, more pain, more anxiety, depression. So sleep is a really, really important piece that is often missed. Most people know that they should be exercising and dieting, eating healthy. That, That seems to be things where people are doing a pretty decent job, the sleep is probably the thing that's missed the most.
0: Does it surprise people when they maybe they come to you and they've got some kind of issue which is involved with the gut somehow, and then you talk to them about sleep? Is that surprising?
1: Yes, it is. And being a clinician, it's always, when is the right time to introduce an issue? And what we try to do as best we can at the Ruscio Institute is kind of rank order the treatments for each patient that we think is most likely to help. And almost always, there's at least one or two major lifestyle pieces that someone can do better that we want to pull the trigger on first, right? Because if someone is coming in and their diet is really inappropriate, right? They're just, let's say they've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and they're eating small meals nine times a day because they're weight training, right? And then we can say, hey, I think it's your meal spacing issue that needs to happen. And we'll we'll give you three or four Hours in between meals, maybe cut the carbs a little bit. Let's see how we go from there. We're also going to maybe give you some basic GI support. Come and see me in a few weeks. I think that may be enough. If not, we'll go to number two. So we, we try to order the operations for what's most likely to help. And my big picture point is almost always the lifestyle is being missed. And um, if you let me go on a slight tangent, um, one of the, the reasons why uh, we, we end up seeing patients who failed multiple doctors or general patient who comes in who's seen a couple of GPs, maybe a specialist, and is still having an issue. Or they've seen a few integrative or functional medicine doctors, and they're still... There are basics that are being missed all the time in these patients. And I think the major reason why is that many of the functional medicine doctors have bought into the Kool-Aid that I need to do organic acid testing and adrenal testing and get a microbiome profile and advanced thyroid labs. They bought into that idea that if they just the numbers on a page, their patient will get better. So they spend all their intellectual bandwidth thinking about thyroid ratios, right? And they miss the fact that the patients sleep in four hours a night. And so we get a lot of mileage out of doing the basic. We'll almost always do some gut support because of the reasons I've already talked about. And then if someone is not improving, then we'll say, what might be missed? Is this an environment? Is there a limbic or amygdala imbalance? There's lots and lots of things, heavy metals, mold, the list goes on and on. And it's more about thinking individually based on patient's story. What are the things that happened right before they got sick? And that will point us into maybe a different direction. Than We try to do that that, that thing called listening. is <laughs> often missed. Which is so important. Yeah. That advanced, the advanced medical skill of listening to your patient.
0: So that kind of takes us back to where we started. So, we, we were talking before, early in the episode, about maybe f- someone goes to see a functional medicine practitioner who, as you talked about, recommends lots of different lab tests. And that's probably not someone that would be advisable to have a long lasting relationship. But so, and I asked you the question so, how would, w- what to look for? So is it a case of someone's decided they are going to go the functional medicine route. Should they start looking into where they trained, for example, should they, if they've trained with the IFM, is that, is that normally a good indicator that this is probably someone to work with? What is it someone c- could look for who doesn't have any training in this whole area?
1: I, I think you want to look for someone with an open mind who is not, who doesn't seem sold that every case has to be a hormone deficiency case. Or every case has to be a missed thyroid case, and we've got to throw more. You don't want someone thinking that everything is, even though we love the gut, it's not always the gut, right? Mm-hmm. So you're looking for someone who's not dogmatic. And I think the early functional medicine practitioner, ah, I try to say nice things. Let me see if I can say this in a polite, respectful way. Many people who become integrator or functional medicine doctors had a really bad experience with the conventional medical system. Yes. Yeah. So they become dogmatic and addictive. So right. the dogma in the conventional arena, is everything is a drug, it's a drug, it's a drug. If the drug doesn't work, it's in your head. Hmm. It's a little bit of an over-exaggeration. There are so many brilliant, amazing conventional doctors. So please don't hate me if you're a conventional doctor, but I think most people will recognize the of the truth there. The problem is that a lot of people are turned off by that approach. So they go into the integrative medicine arena, and then they become almost dogmatic in a, a certain small subset of integrative medicine. They hmm. saw thyroid really fix someone, so they think it's always thyroid. Or they found a, a lower carb, lower insulin approach really helpful for someone as they become a low carb out <laughs> You're looking for someone who, who is looking for just the tools that help. And there are tools in the conventional world, right? There are tools in the integrative world. That they what will actually move the needle for patients? You're looking for someone who doesn't seem like they're dogmatic or just trying to push one item. Hmm. It's harder. It's it, easier to say, harder to do. We are taking patients, if you like what I'm saying, of a clinic with people all over the place, all over the world at the Gruscio Institute. So I'm biased. I'm the medical director, but I think we do a great job. Happy to talk to you. I mean,
0: we'll, we'll get into all your, how people can find out more about you. But just before that, so some of the thing, something you touched upon about five minutes ago, you talked about how if someone is trying to gain weight and they're eating six, seven, eight, nine times a day, whatever it might be, what are your thoughts or do you ever suggest to many of your clients about things like intermittent fasting, yeah. water fasting,
1: so on? Absolutely. Both of those things for the right patients. It's, it's always a question of, is this the right tool for the right patient? But we love intermittent fasting. For weight loss, my clinical experience is that most patients need to do more than intermittent fasting. intermittent fasting most people would think of as like 18 hours of not eating, six hours of eating, a compressed eating window. What I have found is that most people need to go to the 24-hour mark to have enough clearance of glycogen stores in the body to lower and to kick more of a ketogenic state. So usually when I'm having people use this for weight loss, I have them do at least a 24-hour fast once or twice a week. My feeling is that intermittent fasting is excellent for health, but it should be pulsed in where there's time to redo this and then maybe back off of it. I haven't found it be enough pick for weight loss. Um, but we love it. It's very helpful for the gut. The more rest you can get for the gut, uh, the better. So we find that um, fasting can be curative for some gastrointestinal conditions. We could spend 30 minutes talking about fasting. I, I love it. There are, there are excellent studies showing reduction in inflammatory markers and symptoms in rheumatoid arthritis from water fasting periods of water fasting can be extremely uh, helpful to the immune system. We see deep changes in the immune system with fasting, and we see it eradicate a lot of the bacterial problems in the gut. So we'll frequently do elemental diets, which is a variant of fasting for our patients with inflammatory bowel disease or IBS. So we love fasting. It's just got to be the right tool for the right patient. You'll have patients who have eating disorders. And so if you have someone with an eating disorder and a background of bulimia, or they're underweight, then you're not going to be pushing that, right? Just, and then on that, and we've
0: talked about, you've talked about the, how beneficial it is for people trying to lose weight. And it therefore then turns people off who are trying to gain weight. They're trying to build muscle and they think, oh, that's definitely not the route I should take. I don't ever want to be doing anything like intermittent fasting. So what would you say to, to people
1: with that approach? We say the body, the body is the boss, right? Your response to the treatment is the only thing. It doesn't matter how many studies there are for XY condition. It really matters. Does it work for you or not? And we stop doing things that aren't working. So many times if I have something where someone's like really keen on fasting and I'm not sure, I say, give it a try. Do Give me a 24-hour fast twice a week. Do that for a month and let's track your body fat and your weight and let's see. Is this moving you in a good direction or not? Because if it's not, we're going to stop this strategy. But maybe I'm wrong and maybe the fasting is a good fit. So it just comes on just meeting the patient where they're at and not being dogmatic about these things because you i think any good clinician will be surprised right if their mind is open and they're trying to be objective they'll be surprised things that they didn't think were going to work all of a sudden are the thing that worked so i don't know if i answered your question tony i'm sorry
0: but it was more about guys there's a lot of guys who are trying especially say in their late teens early 20s who are feel they're really underweight and they trying so hard to gain weight and they just oh, can't yeah. gain weight yeah so, so they will often think i would i should never do something like intermittent fasting because that's the last thing that's going to help so them. so what they could think
1: a little bit broader right so they could maybe pulse in one day of fasting a week but if they're eating six out of seven days of, a caloric surplus then they're going to gain weight so they may be able to eat enough six days of the week so that Period of zero calories on the seventh day would net not be a problem, and it might be a helpful reset. My perspective on all things diet is that you shouldn't pick one thing and roll with that forever. The body does need to change. So I, I don't think we should always be, I'm always going to be keto, or I'm always going to be carnivore, I'm always going to be low fat, whatever it is. I think the body deserves curveballs thrown at it. I think that probably is the way to keep it the health. For the guys trying to lose weight, my, my latest realization is just the obvious importance of protein. I don't think I have really understood until recently how critical protein intake is and how easy it is to under-eat protein. The guidelines that I was taught in medical school are really under what people need, I think, for optimal health, particularly if they've been chronically ill. So these days, I'm recommending quite a bit more protein for many
0: we're drawing to, towards the end of the episode. So before, before we go, there's a couple of things I want to ask you. One is a question I ask all my guests. Is there a sure. book you can think of that's moved you in for any reason?
1: I'll give, you, I'll give you the answer I'm supposed to give as medical director. And it's also a true answer. It's Michael Ruscio wrote Healthy Gut, Healthy You. And that was one of the kind of turning point. I read that book and I said, I think this Michael guy is not crazy and in fact has the best answer for how to get the gut well. And the the nice thing about this is at the end, there's a how to do this kind of practical problem solving yourself. And so for 20 bucks, I think patients who've struggled with their GP and not having a good map for how to get their gut health better better can read this book and figure it. So healthy gut, healthy you is just phenomenal. I and mean, it honestly should sell for 50 bucks. It, it, it's just phenomenal. And then I read quite a lot. So I'll just answer with the book I'm reading right now is a really neat novel called Green Bone, you know, Green Jade by Brenda Lee. It's a kind of like the Godfather with Kung Fu and like a, a fantasy city. It's just fantastic. I was in the airport all day yesterday reading that book. That was fun. If you're looking for a non medical, just fun book, right?
0: We'll have both of those in the show notes so people can check those out. So if people want to find out about you and the institute you're working on, where would they go to?
1: There, go to the Ruscio Institute.com. That's R U S C I O Institute.com. And there's our, we onboard all patients online. So if they're interested in working with us, they'll see a become a patient page and they'll just click process and no, we'll be happy you, to work with them.
0: Are you guys active on social media at all?
1: Yeah, we are. And, but I'm a poor interview subject because I couldn't tell you. Uh, I know, I think Instagram, we are active and well,
0: we'll put the links in, again in the show notes for your sure, social media. Sure, thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> so finally, Joe, is there is there a quote that particularly resonates with you? I've been thinking about kind of the dogma and people just going to one solution and that's the way to. And so the book that I've been thinking about lately and I'll butcher it, but it was uh, one of the Huxley's. I think it was Aldous Huxley said the uh, the mark of a first-rate mind is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in it at the same time. Hmm. Something like that. But the idea that the truth is not just one, right? That there may be some things that are both true in certain situations, and how can we reconcile those ideas? And Hmm. I always like that quote. I think it's great. Yeah, it is a good
0: quote. Yeah. So I'll make sure we have that. Yeah, we have that one in the show. Yeah, but
1: maybe just get the the actual, so we'll, we'll not, so Mr. Huxley is not rolling in his grave. Maybe we can Get the actual
0: quote. The actual words, yeah. Yeah. Because I can't remember exactly what he said, either. Yeah. Joe, it's just been an absolute pleasure. So thank you for your time and for giving us so much great information on many different areas. Yeah. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. My pleasure.
0: Next week, episode 97, with Luke Lorio, who is the host of the On This Walk podcast where he and his guests share their real stories and experiences on the challenges as well as what it takes to be centred, connected, fulfilled and balanced. He's a former president and CEO of IPEC, the Institute for Professional Excellence in Coaching, which is one of the largest and most respected coach training organisations in the world and he still serves on the board at IPEC. So that's next week's episode, Luke Lurio. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Dr. Joe Mather. If you got some value from it or if you know anyone who could really benefit from listening to this episode, please share the episode with them. And I hope you have a great great week.
1: Thanks for tuning into the Habits and Health podcast, where we believe creating healthy habits should be easy. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app. You can also sign up for email updates and learn about coaching and workshop opportunities at tonywinyard.com. See you next time on the Habits and Health Podcast.